Howdy, y'all. You're listening to The Managing Up Show, a podcast about leading and managing in the world of technology. I'm your host, Nick Means, and with me this week are Brandon Hayes. Hello. And Travis Weisgood. Howdy, y'all. So earlier this summer, um, I I read or actually listened to a, uh, a really interesting book by uh, Steve Magnus called uh, Do Hard Things. And he focuses a lot on, on toughness, uh, and it's mostly in the context of uh, toughness in sports. Um, he's a running coach, um, a pretty successful one at that. Uh, but everything that he said, uh, is applicable to the way we think about, uh, our teams. And one of the things that stuck out as a recurring theme in that book that I just instantly resonated with me in the context of, of the teams that I've been on, the teams that I've run, uh, is this concept of the heroic individual, um, Western culture, U.S. culture specifically, you know, really tends to celebrate that heroic individual. Um, it's the person who hits the home run in the bottom of the ninth, uh, or uh, makes the the uh, the touchdown return uh, as the the clock runs out at, in the football game. Um, the person who makes the half court shot in basketball, um, or in our context uh, in engineering teams. Uh, the person who's able to to ship the feature at one in the morning, right before a huge demo that's a make or break uh, with the biggest customer you've you've ever landed, um, we tend to celebrate that, um, and it has a it can turn into something uh, that can be uh, a little toxic. In talking with Nick and Brandon about this idea. Uh, and kind of mulling over it the last few weeks, it's something that we've all seen. Um, and we've all seen it to varying degrees. Uh, it's not always the, the make or break. Uh, this is the thing that kept the company afloat. Um, it may just be the person that's trying to be the, the, the small hero, trying to make sure that all of the, the points on the sprint are accounted for and going that extra mile every single sprint. Um, that can be helpful, but it can also be pretty harmful, both to the team and to the individual. Uh, so I wanted to open it up to y'all. What are some things that you've seen that you would classify as heroic individualism within your team? I think the light version of this, in my experience, is something that I've um, either heard termed or invented this or more likely stole it without credit, is the idea of gap filling. And um, it's incredibly common. I would say it's not only common, it's kind of a constant state. No team is no team at all times has the complete set of all the Legos they need to put together the products that they want to release to accomplish the goals they want to. Um, you're always finding things that are that are gaps and needing to fill those. And um, so common experiences I've had are um, you're either missing a product manager or you are, um, you know, there's some sort of gap in, in, in a product delivery setup. And so somebody's doing some product or project management. And I've seen members of teams do things like, okay, I put a, a document together that has a list of all the important things that we probably want to do and things that need to happen before the next release. And, um, and that can be really healthy, you know, like mm -hmm. it can be difficult to know the difference between when somebody is appropriately filling a gap. In a, you know, hey, we don't, we just don't have all the things that we need in order to get this done. And people are filling a gap and that's, you know, it feels like recognizable or rewarding, rewardable behavior. 
Um, sometimes they'll do that in secret for a long time. Um, and it's, it can be difficult to tell the difference between when there's a sort of natural gap filling where people kind of like a shortstop, uh, to use a baseball metaphor that I don't understand, but like my understanding of a shortstop is they kind of can go fill in for a position for somebody at, at either uh, second or third base, uh, depending on who needs to go do something. And, um, that can be really useful, uh, to have that flexibility in your team, but it also can be kind of chronic. Um, so it, it can be difficult to know when somebody's just doing uh, a kind of a relatively healthy and innocuous gap filling. And when they're actually compensating for the fact that something should exist and kind of hiding problems. Yeah. I love that framing. Um, and I love the idea of it being something that kind of sneaks up on you, not something that you set out to do and like, I'm going to go save this team. Um, or I'm going to go make sure that this team ships on time. Uh, but one of those things that's like, you look around and you're like, okay, what, what can I do to help move this forward? And it starts from such a, a good positive place. I wonder, you, you said it's difficult to find that, that line for where that shifts into something that's, that's toxic from kind of like covering the gaps to like trying to build bridges that, that you're not really responsible for. Um, what would you, you view as a thing that starts to, to move the needle more in that direction? Well, those extreme examples do exist. The extreme examples of I'm going to save it. Like I can save it. <laughs> I'm going to save it. Um, there's a whole, maybe this is something we can cover later in the conversation, but there's a whole host of reasons that um, incentives are set up for people to secretly eat that that work and to not um to not reveal that that work is being done but to sort of take it on as a second job uh and and to feel like hey you are responsible only you can save you know only you can save the day uh and then there's that sort of um her, her, true heroic individualism that comes out and so um it is it is a little harder to tease apart at the more subtle level like where do you see the sort of uh line where, where somebody may have, you know, may have, uh, taken on too much. I, I think, I guess the way I would say it is if they're doing somebody else's job mm -hmm. and I think there's a certain experience level you get to where you've been around enough that you can kind of bucket tasks along different jobs. And if you see somebody doing something and, and it becomes recognizable as the job of someone like this is clearly like you're doing customer research and talking to customers and, gathering customer feedback and synthesizing that and, and, uh, doing, you know, trying to figure out why something is valuable for long enough. Like that's at a certain point, you can call that product management work. And as soon as it becomes identifiable, identifiable as somebody else's job and they're doing it because there's a gap there and it becomes sort of chronic, it's multiple, you know, multiple times over a longer period of time. Um, that may be time to file it as a bug. It really starts with just paying attention. The problem with these kind of things is, is that of problem hiding. So a lot of times this gap filling, I, again, this is really difficult to peel apart. When does gap filling become problem hiding? Like at what point does it cross from being uh, a thing a person does to a thing that actually keeps the organization from feeling pain they should feel so that the organization can, can fill that gap? Yeah. 
I think that's a really great metric and it, it, it kind of helps with one question I had as you were describing this, because you've described really well the concept of you're doing somebody else's job, uh, especially if that somebody else is alongside your normal role. Um, but I've seen situations where somebody is doing their job, but doing way more of their job than is really reasonable. Um, and that can either be that they've decided to take it on themselves. Um, and they're, that's just their personality type. Uh, they strive to be that, that heroic individual in, in the organization or on the team. Um, or it could be systemic that the organization is putting them in a situation where they either have to be comfortable with failure because there's just not enough man hours to make it work, or they have to step in and try to, it's, it's a filling of gaps, but it's not filling a gap. That's another, another role other than other people on the team with you. Yeah. And one of the things that, that makes this so insidious, so hard to deal with is that people like to feel valuable and it's really easy to kind of check that box for yourself by stepping into the hero role. Um, yeah, especially exactly. if you have management that's not watching out for it, that's not actively trying to keep it from happen, happening, or that doesn't even recognize it as a pathology. Mm -hmm. um, because oftentimes managers make the mistake of when someone steps into one of these heroic roles, they reward it. They, they don't take the inquisitive stance. They don't try to figure out what's going wrong. They thank the person for going above and beyond. And that sets the example for everybody on the team that that's how you get noticed. And, and you can create sort of this situation, if you're not careful, where everybody on the team is kind of trying to out-hero each other. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is so true. It's one of those things, if you like, kind of take stock of, of the last 30 days and times you've called out behavior on the team or maybe even other people and other teams in your organization – like, Hey, help. Uh, thanks for helping with X. Um, more often than not, it's the, Hey, thanks for going above and beyond and, and saving me. Um, it's not a, Hey, we just had a really productive, normal conversation, uh, with a customer that, that you facilitated. Um, and as a product manager, that was your job. Thank you for doing your job. That was great. <laughs> um, it's, more often the like, thank you for completely saving our organization, our team, our quarter, whatever the context, but it's always some big overblown thing. And the challenge with it is that sometimes it's necessary mm -hmm. for any business to be successful. Every once in a while, people are going to have to step above and beyond the letter of their job responsibility and do something that's a little outside their role or spend a little more time than they, than they signed up for to get something over the line. And so the challenge becomes how to let those things happen occasionally when, when they're necessary, how to reward them appropriately when they do happen without incentivizing them. Yeah. Or I, I think I would adjust that just a little bit without incentivizing that happening as just a matter of business, that this is just the way we run the organization. As you were describing that, I, I kicked this off saying that the, the book that I read that, that, uh, that I saw this term in for the first time was a running coach. And it reminds me like if you're coaching a track team, 
the folks on your team, the fastest they're ever going to run is their a race of the year, whether that's, that's regionals, nationals, um, Olympics, whatever it is, that one day is what they're peaking for. And at that point, if everything's gone right, they are going to put in a heroic effort, but it's all towards that one thing. And I think that's sort of the idea in, in the business context every so often, but it's, it's once a year, maybe, um, there's going to be something that let me rephrase it. It's once a year that the organization is healthy, um, or, or less, but there's going to be a time where it's like, okay, we, we do need to fire on all cylinders and we're going to put in an effort that's unlike anything we've ever done. And when we get done, we're all going to feel great about that effort. And then we know we're going to reset. Um, and that's the thing when you run that big race, like a lot of folks will take a couple of weeks to a month, just completely off. If running's your thing, you're not going to put your running shoes on. Uh, if it's cycling, you're not going to look at a bike for a while to let your body reset so that you can come back. And you know what? The next time you get there, if you keep up that training, you're going to be in an even better place the next time. And I think that's true for teams as well. One of the, I've talked about this before on the podcast. One of the reasons I hate the idea of a sprint, um, you, you barely sprint when you're, you're running. Uh, so I think it's a horrible metaphor to be constantly running sprints, um, as a team, it needs to be a, a, a dosed effort. You know, that gets to a point, um, something that came up in, in the context of this book. Uh, that I think is, is really interesting. Um, and, and Nick, you kind of mentioned it here. You're talking about the the incentives aligning and especially for, for folks in the organization who like love having all of this heroic action and things getting delivered constantly and just under, just on time. And it, it feels like such an efficient way to run the organization from the outside. If you don't know the mechanics of what's going on. Um, one of the stories that, that, Steve talked about in this book, uh, that really resonated with me, uh, was the, the seal training. Um, everyone who's ever done anything on mental toughness or, or physical tough, toughness tends to come across, uh, hell week in seal training. And it's the, you make it through this or you're out hardly any sleep. Uh, it's crazy stressful, both physically and mentally. Um, I, I don't have, the numbers memorized, but there's a large percentage, uh, of the, the group that make it in there that, that do wash out. Like this is, you don't make it all the way through that. Um, and that's by design. Like they, <laughs> they only want people in the seals that can make it through this program. Um, but most folks on the outside focus on that one week and the fact that you're going to run a full week on hours of sleep over the entirety of the week. And they're either ignorant or just forget about the six weeks that lead up to that. That process of training is a seven week program. The last week is the test. The six weeks that lead up to that is sitting in a classroom doing really boring rote stuff, trying to understand what their body's about to go through physically and mentally and prepping them and, and, and providing them with strategies on how to counter the physical stress that they're about to put their bodies through. In that idea of there's going to be times as a team that we need to like, we really need to push beyond. Are there corollaries where we look at that? We want every sprint to be like that, that hell week, but we don't go through the training. We're just throwing people into it. 
Um, are there things that we could be doing to kind of help prep for that and, and get people prepared for Hey, sometimes this is going to happen. That's not the norm so that we can have a team that can function on all cylinders, but also recognizing that that's just not the way that the team operates, uh, on a, as just a, a matter of course, it's just the thing that we're, we're capable of. That sounds suspiciously like trauma bonding to me. <laughs> But doesn't trauma bonding in this instance focus on just what happens at the end and not the the process that gets you to the place where you could could do that? And the the corollary to that is that that like it looks like trauma to us. The same way that like a full distance triathlon or an Ironman race looks like trauma to most people. They're like, why would you sign up to do that? You're going to run a marathon after swimming for an hour and riding your bike for hours on end. Then you're going to go run a marathon. Like that sounds horrible. But for the person who's trained for that, that's what they're, they're capable of. I don't know if I can think of, maybe I can. I just haven't had a lot of opportunities to work in environments that I certainly the Navy SEALs of software exists and I've never worked on that team and I've worked on some pretty damn important projects. I've worked on some big things where I won't say the names of places, but like when the place that I worked hiccups, the entire internet goes, what just happened? <laughs> and I've, I've, I've worked on projects where if we screw something up, the entire infrastructure of the internet has a problem. And even then, I don't think I've found myself in a situation where the concept of seasonality didn't apply. And I think seasonality is probably the, the metaphor I like to use for this, mm -hmm. is there is a season where things are, are going to be more intense, and there is a season where things are going to be less intense. And it takes a while to understand how those seasons work if you work at a place that does yearly conferences, it's really easy to predict, actually. <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> you, can, you can know. Um, if you work in a place that's really attached to quarterly earnings calls, you can know what the seasonality is probably going to look like. Anytime there is an actual, real, hard deadline involved, you're going to see that seasonality. Most mm -hmm. deadlines are made up. We all know this. We all know we can push them. You can't move a conference can't move an earnings call. Those things are going to happen no matter the, whether you want them to or not. And so when you're going into that hard deadline, you're going to see some level of activity ramping up to get whatever it is across the line ready for that event. Um, now, there's mature ways for organizations to handle this that don't involve it being a Navy SEALs hell week. Not every organization has figured those out. Most organizations have not figured that out. Let's be honest with ourselves here. I wasn't going to say it, but you did. <laughs> you can, I mean, you can hope and people on the yeah. ground are actually usually typically better at seeing and calling that out and saying, Hey, mm -hmm. there's a need here for better pre-planning. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like somebody gave me, uh, when I was learning how to budget, somebody gave me budgetary advice. And I think this is sourced from um, what I would perceive to be like a dubious place, but I thought the advice was, was solid and it is Christmas so let's say the holidays, like if you have a, a high expenditure period, holidays or, or summer vacation season, those aren't surprises. There's no such thing as the holidays sneaking mm -hmm. up on you in reality, even if it feels like it happens happens. every year. What do you mean? 
It happens every year. You no, I'm know saying it sneaks up on me every year. Oh, every, oh okay. Yeah, no. But the, the, once somebody sneaks, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on. Fool, me, 40, fool me 40 something times. <laughs> so to make a dated political reference. Um, so I, I think that you can kind of predict that seasonality mm-hmm. if you've been in a, in a workplace for longer than a year. And uh, one, one nice thing, and I, I tend, I've been in the industry long enough that I know that the seasons exist. And I tend to go in and tell teams early on in our tenure working together that there's going to, there are going to be seasons to the way that we work more than likely. I don't know what those are yet, um, but you can experience, you, you can expect to experience uh, periods of higher intensity and lower intensity. And maybe once or twice a year at the maximum, we may be asked to sort of pour things on. And and so let's plan for that. And it would be great to understand if you if you already know those patterns, great, help me understand it. If not, we'll we'll learn them together. Um, and the, the weird thing about that is just by calling that out and predicting it, um, people are on the lookout for those periods of higher intensity and tend to prepare better for them mm-hmm. and say, oh, that period of higher intensity is coming. Let's clear more of our docket so that we have more bandwidth to help with that. And it winds up lowering the amount of intensity experienced in those more intense periods. It doesn't, it's not perfect. And, and yeah, I can't even say today that I figured it out, but it does, it does help to at least see them, call it out, uh, and, and sort of like, let's make sure our chores are done. Let's make sure we haven't oversubscribed ourselves because the intense period is coming. You say it's not perfect, but, but something that's interesting about that observation is we wouldn't thrive if it was. Humans are seasonal creatures. And so if there's not sort of that variability to to work rhythms, periods of higher and lower intensity, that's really boring for us. We won't find a lot of satisfaction or enjoyment in that work. Now, if the peaks and valleys are too high and low, it, it, it's going to run everybody off. Nobody's going to want to keep working at that place. But some amount of variability is necessary to keep the work interesting and to provide advancement opportunities, because that's that's sort of the the good side of of the coin in this situation, is when those intensive periods come and people stretch themselves a little bit beyond what they knew they were capable of. That's how you grow, kind of stretching into that proximal zone of development, and it can look suspiciously like heroic behavior. The difference is that it's seasonal; it happens occasionally not something that somebody's doing on an ongoing basis and not something they're doing to cover up organizational pain necessarily. Yeah. And to, and to your point earlier, it can be difficult to, I, I'm trying to remember the turn of phrase you used that was so good. And it was like how to reward it without incentivizing it Yeah, to say, Hey, don't come back for more reward pellets. Like this is not, you're not going to get the dopamine hit every time, but this, this is, that's a difficult thing to uh, achieve when I was um, less mature on my management journey and obviously we're all like growing and learning all the time and there are going to be things I'm embarrassed I think today um but at a certain point I was working with somebody that had clearly become kind of addicted to that reward cycle because it was the only way they knew that they were valuable mm-hmm. um and uh I decided my way to break their addiction was to stop rewarding heroic behavior altogether and say no that's heroic behavior we don't want that. And I don't want to reward that. Like what we need to do is find our equilibrium as a team and deliver together. And I'm filing this as an organizational bug. 
And so back to my metaphor of like filing bug reports on that stuff. And would you be surprised that that didn't work? That was not the right way to go about that. One thing I can recommend not doing is telling somebody who's kind of on the hero cycle with a company where the company continues to reward them and say, no, 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 this is where your value is. And and as a manager, me coming in to intercede and saying, no, 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 bad, bad hero. You need to you know go back to doing... And, and I do believe this one thing that a positive form of encouragement that, that, uh, I think Travis, you had alluded to, I think doing your job really well is the form of heroism we're actually looking for. Just do your job really well. Come in, do it to the best of your ability, go home. Don't think about work. Great. Um, I think that is kind of the, the heroism I'm here for most of the time, but when somebody's kind of hooked on that above and beyond thing, the organization has conditioned them for this more than likely. And going in and blaming the person for being addicted to it is actually like a really bad rookie maneuver. And I'm sorry, that person is not a listener of this podcast, but if they were, I'm sorry. Um, there are better ways of handling that. So you've said there are better ways to handle it. Uh, what would you do now with the benefit of hindsight and the extra experience you have? I think Nick alluded to it, which is to let a person know, hey, that is really appreciated. Kind of go into situation behavior impact. Here's the situation. Here's the behavior we exhibited. Here's the impact. Now, let's talk about long-term impact. Over the long term, that same behavior can cause the company to not understand there's a problem that needs to be filled. And let me understand, is this what you want your job to be? And it become, you can you can bring Nick-style questions and curiosity, like, oh, tell me more about you know, your experience of doing this? Is that something that you like to do? Is that something you would like to do more of or less of? And usually when somebody's doing above and beyond stuff, they know that's not sustainable. I would like to let that go is going to be the answer 98 times out of 100. Um, and so you get to have that a curiosity-based conversation with the person about the long-term impact of the good thing that they did that can kind of turn sour on them over time and certainly not, they won't find them, you know, that to be sustainable for themselves. So one thing I think would be interesting to talk about here, I want to talk about reward systems, especially at big companies, because one of the things that you encounter in reward season at any large co corporation is the idea of differentiated rewards. As a manager, you, you have to put the rewards for your team on a bell curve. Most people need to be right down the middle. There's a couple people that can be up on top. You're in in the worst organizations, you're expected to put a few people on the bottom half of that bell curve as well. But if you come through with the slate of rewards that's just right down the middle and gives everybody A plus, great job, keep it up. Or even if you think your whole team is performing above average and you give them slightly above the middle of the bell curve, your organization leader is going to kick that back and tell you to differentiate your rewards. How do you navigate that without perpetuating hero culture? If you're asking how you ethically stack rank, I don't have an answer for you, and I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the reason I asked the question. There's not an easy. <laughs> there's not an easy answer to it. Wasn't the GE answer that you just take and fire the bottom ten percent and move on with? But what does bottom mean in this case? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing, right? Because if if you're building a team the right way. It's really a character building exercise, right? So everybody on the team has one or two axes that they're just at the top of the chart on and a couple other things that maybe they're kind of middling proficient, a couple of things that they're not, they're not the best at the team on. And if you build the team right, you've got a bunch of people that are, are all 
at the top of the chart in certain characteristics and it balances out where you've got all the skills that you need to get everything that your team needs to get done, done. In that situation, it's hard to differentiate rewards. And it can be easy to bias reward differentiation to the person that that sort of led the most visible feature that went out the door and ignore the person that did all of the glue work that made it possible for that to happen in the first place. There's so many directions to take this conversation, but I think the word rewards deserves to get parsed apart a little bit. You smile because I think that's what you're like, oh, that's that's that was you setting the volleyball for the spike. <laughs> and I, I, so I'll take it. I'll, I'll take you up on that. Um, the idea of rewards, when you talk about it in HR terms, they literally mean compensation. They do. Yeah, it's money. Money and stock. And there is some equitability uh, factor there where if people are compensated, compensated differently because uh, one person performs the kind of function for the organization that they understand how to reward monetarily. So if you're in a really highly technical organization, this person delivers uh, technical features that are visible in some way that cause the organization to say, wow, one of the miraculous and magical and challenging and potentially unsustainable aspects of managing software engineers and maybe managing human beings in general is to understand that sort of you, I had a mental picture of a, 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 I forget what it's called. Is it a star chart where, where, or a spider web chart? Spider chart. Spider chart. Overlapping spider charts that largely fill in the circle as you layer team members on top of one another. And you go, okay, as I look at these spider charts together, we now have a covered area. Kevin Goldsmith did a talk on this at Lead Dev, gosh, probably 10 years ago now. Um, that, that's been one of the, the foundational understandings of my career since that point. I'll have to, we'll link in the show notes. But yeah, he went, he went on this idea that, you know, when, when you're trying to figure out who you need to hire on the team, build a spider chart and, and you can figure out where you don't have covered in the things that are important to your team. Uh, I think that's terrific. And, and so when I'm, uh, when I'm thinking about what rewards mean, you have individual human beings comprising their individual layers of that chart. And um, the organization is going to be set up to reward people uh, from a compensation perspective differently for how they understand some of those things are going to be weighted more highly. Uh, you know that if you have a, for instance, if you have a, a growth framework, a career matrix, career ladder, whatever people call it, um, they're going to be like six or seven things. And they're going to be like, one of them is going to be like, how well do you communicate? One of them is going to be, how nice a person are you to work with? And two of them are going to be technical. And those are the two that people get promoted on. And uh, it's it's important to understand and recognize that when you're having conversation with individuals on the team to know, hey, these are two anchor points that are going to be looked at by the organization as what we reward. And the rest of these are kind of not nice to have necessarily. They're, they're also must haves, but they're not the thing that drive the rewards of the organization. And you as a manager should understand that and be able to communicate that. But also at the same time, advocate for rewarding this other behavior. If glue work really is essential to delivery, it's kind of my job as a manager to do my best to advocate for wrapping that into the reward systems. And I've seen it done where like cultural values are wrapped into the promotion process and people are promoted like, oh, and they demonstrate this value really well. And here are examples of how they demonstrated that value that has nothing to do with their technical output. It has everything to do with their efficacy because we believe that this value of either um, communicating really well or being very kind 
uh, actually helps us build the kind of workplace we want to work at. And we recognize and value that, that as a part. And I've seen it done. I know it's possible. <clears throat> so, um, the, but then one last thing I'll say about this rewards include more than just pay. And I know HR teams say that to manipulate and harm people. And I'm not, I don't mean it that way. I mean, it is my job as a manager to help make sure that someone's reward system in what it is that they value out of their job matches, uh, the ways that they're rewarded. It is my job to make sure that people are compensated equitably to the very best of my ability, but also to understand hey, this person values the flexibility this job offers. It's my job to protect that and make sure that's part of the reward structure of this thing. Hey, you worked really hard on this thing. I know you value your time. Let's take some comp time away. Like you, you, you know, like uh, I know you, you value people understanding what it is that you, what you delivered. Let me help you uh, explain to a larger group how this was impactful. There are a lot, you know, individual people like to be rewarded in different ways. Everybody likes to be paid uh, equitably. Uh, and, and, and so there are kind of two answers. One is to sort of advocate to make sure that pay reflects the individual contributions. And the other one is to make sure that an individual person has like a reward structure that kind of matches their preferred style of being rewarded and recognized. That's a lot of work for one manager, by the way. That's kind of asking a lot. It is. And... The other thing that's worth noting is that it's rare for an organization to, at least in my experience, give sort of the glue work, the team coordination work, it's due on the career ladder. So much of it's focused on technical stuff, shipping features, leading important features, doing important work, um, things that are sort of randomly distributed in most organizations and, and that that engineers don't necessarily have direct control over things that you don't even have control over as a manager in a lot of cases. And that makes it really difficult to do what you just said to make sure that folks are are paid equitably and rewarded in ways that are meaningful to them. Yeah, you have to kind of also be willing to acknowledge your own limitations as a manager. I think people sometimes have an expectation of their manager that is, hey, I did all this stuff. I feel like I should get this. And uh, again, coming back to like how the, the rookie move versus the sort of galaxy brain move, the rookie move is to be like, yeah, I agree. We should fight this and, um, or I, or just let's be mad about it together. It's really easy to want to stay in rapport with a report who, uh, feels hard done by, by the system, um, or to overpromise and say, I'm, you know, I'm going to go fight for this. And they feel, or or even just saying yes when somebody says you should go fight this like or say i can't fight anything so there there's a another delicate line to walk of okay this is something i also care about but let me be honest about my own limitations within this organization so we're butting up against something that's an interesting interesting part of the the conversation of the heroic individual um everything that we've focused on so far in the, the 35 minutes or so that we've been been chatting about this uh, has been focused on people on our team. Um, you talked about people that step into the gaps uh, and how that can, they can become not so much people mining the gaps, but people who are like holding the, the ship together. 
Uh, I think a lot of people who end up in management roles who have come from an engineering background gravitate towards that kind of work. Uh, I would venture to say that a lot of people who listen to this podcast gravitate towards that kind of work. How do you turn that spotlight that we've been focused on the, the people that are on our teams inward to make sure we as managers are not doing that? I don't want to talk about this. Can we not talk about this? I was going to say, <laughs> did this get a little it, personal it here? Be an episode. <laughs> It wouldn't be an episode of Managing Up if I didn't feel personally called out. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know quite how to get into this. Um, we, we've talked about Heat Shield Shed Umbrella on this show before, and it, and it kind of gets into that a little bit, um, making sure you're not carrying too much load for your team. Um, but it really is easy in, in the roles that we're in to forget to put your own oxygen mask on first and to make sure that you're not doing the thing where you keep the organization from feeling the pain that it needs to feel in order to grow, in order to correct deficiencies. Um, and the hazard of doing that is if you don't have a manager that understands that, that's on the same page as you, that doesn't expect heroic behavior out of you, that's a liability. You know, if, if you're sitting there and, and you're you're pulling back your own effort to let to avoid being the hero and to let the organization feel the pain that it needs in order to correct a problem that you perceive in the organization and you're not on the same page with your boss in that situation, you're putting yourself in a pretty vulnerable situation. I think I would extend that vulnerability to somebody that reports to you as well. So making sure that you've created that space with the people who report to you to know that that's a thing that's okay, that they don't have to, to take on more than is, is reasonable or more that they're capable of. Um, one thing I found useful in my experience, I mean, this is, this is nothing unique or nothing that I've, I've discovered that this is a pretty standard, uh, I want to say psychological trick, but it's not a trick that actually works. Um, but the idea of thinking about your actions through the lens of other. Um, so when I mean, there's been research that shows that just talking about yourself and naming yourself rather than, than uh, thinking I, but saying Travis thinks this um, instead of I think this can help you distance yourself from the decision and, and gain a little bit of clarity. I think as you're going through those processes, if you start to feel that pain, that can be something that can, can help like start thinking about your work through the lens of I'm trying to manage this work for somebody, somebody else and try to create that psychological distance so that you can see it a little bit more clearly. I think it's, it's a distance issue in my experience that makes it really hard to uncover when this is happening to yourself. So the standard that we hold ourselves to as this sort of incoming generation of hopefully somewhat more enlightened managers who value human beings. And um, I actually think that that is, and I really do mean that sort of generationally. I think this is an increasing demand by people coming into the workforce more recently uh, versus people that whose, whose labor is just to be uh, to be sold and um, maximized. And it's, uh, it's, I, Sorry to interrupt, but it's also worth pointing out that COVID has changed this math for a lot of people. Yeah. It's Good really point. changed what people, when they look at what is success in my life, 
it doesn't always mean maximum financial rewards now. And I think it, it, it more commonly did before COVID, before that, that mass societal perspective shift happened. God, that's a really good point. I think to that, to that point, with that increasing expectation, it becomes increasingly sort of surprising as you become a manager and you, and, and all, th- all three of us have, have held um, organizational roles and responsibilities that rank from, you know, engineer, line level manager, VP, um, business owner. Like we've had a very wide span of responsibilities by now. And I think most of us have had the experience that as you move up in, in organizational hierarchy, the role of a boss changes from manager to person whose job it is to communicate the expectations of the people holding the purse strings, shareholders, board, what have you. And you find yourself surprised that it is not, if you report directly to a CEO, you find yourself surprised that it, the CEO's job is not to be your manager, actually. It is to hold the business together. And if you report to a, a directly to a CEO, my condolences, because you, won't, you, you don't have the right to expect that anymore. Um, if you do, it's a great bonus, but that CEO, I promise, knows that that is not their primary job. If, it, Or when I was a CEO, I didn't realize it was not my primary job and it was part of my failing as a CEO. Um, that becomes increasingly tough. You, you, you may, you no longer have the ability to expect that because that, that expectation increases on you that it, Hey, your job is results. My job is making sure you get the results. And so that, that sort of, uh, that, that more enlightened form of people management that we're responsible for doesn't necessarily translate to higher and higher levels of an organization. And I think, um, it can feel difficult. So when you say, Hey, how do how do we resist the temptation to fall into that like lone hero. I I will, you know, I'll hold things together. It actually is difficult because it's designed to be difficult. This is the organization working as designed where expectations come down and, uh, humane management of people is, is, is something that's just sort of handled. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a permanent state of affairs, but I'm saying that is something I've noticed. Can be. I, I don't think it default has to be. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that I've experienced is part of part of what comes in those higher level management roles. Yes, there's expectations that come down, but there's also a lot of work done to manage the expectations that goes up. And you can set the expectation with the people that hold the purse strings that you're going to run this kind of humane organization and you can make a bet that you're going to get more done by running that humane organization, by treating people with respect, by encouraging them to not work more than 40 hours a week and go take the time they need to recharge so they can come back to work fresh and and ready to work the next day and able to think. Um, And in my experience, you, you were allowed to make that bet. You just better not be wrong. (laughs) I don't think you are probably like, like if you, if you're bringing that kind of experience and you have that level of confidence, you're probably right. And that's the thing, right? Like I, if you really believe in this new generational approach to management where it is more humane, where it is building high growth, high psychological safety, learning environments, 
and you really believe that kind of environment is going to let you get more done, you kind of have to lean into it, even with the people that hold the purse strings, and you have to make room for that experiment to play out. And it involves a lot of managing up. It involves a lot of managing expectations. It involves a lot of explaining inside baseball. Here's the thing that you, my boss, are seeing. Here's why I'm doing it. Here's the effect it's having. And here's the evidence I would point you to to know that it's doing the thing that I'm saying that it's doing. You kind of have to unpack that if, if you're working with somebody that hasn't, hasn't firsthand, doesn't have firsthand experience with the style of management. See, to me, you just described my idea of heroism, which is doing your job really freaking well. Showing up with receipts and intentionality and calling your shot is pro-level move. I think that's super cool. I think that's a, a extraordinary point. I, I would differ with one thing you said there. Um, you started out by saying that that was heroic work. And then you said you ended it by saying that's a pro-level move. I think there's a difference between being professional and really good at your job and being heroic at your job. I think that is one of the differentiators of, of kind of that level of seniority, right? Like at some point, calling your shot and really owning, do we get results or do we not? And being okay, to li- being okay with living with it if it ends up on the side of not, being willing to make that bet, that's part of the seniority. And, and it's not heroic at that point in, in your career. I think that's a good point. I think maybe I'll retire this thing where I've been saying that heroism is just doing your job really well. I think it's cute and it's pithy, but the reality is it's it muddies the water of what heroism is and is for. That um, being a professional is actually not the same thing as being a hero. Mm-hmm. And being a hero is how people perceive professionalism. You hit a game-winning home run. That's heroism. You showed up to practice every day and swung your bat 10,000 times to know how to swing the bat when when the pressure is actually on, that's professionalism. And all you did was be professional in public. Bingo. Like, I think that that literally hits the nail on the head right there. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Things that look heroic earlier in your career become less and less heroic the more trips you get to the plate. If you're a career 395 hitter, then yeah, hitting a home run in, in game seven of the World Series, that's just kind of a thing that you've done in your career. When you do it as a rookie, it's astounding. It's an act of heroism. But when you're 20 years into the league and, and you've you've kept your batting average above 300 every year, it's just a thing you do. And I know we're deep into baseball metaphors here, but and, and I'm not a baseball fan, <laughs> but if uh, as a wild aside, and I'm going to put this in show notes, if people want to have a really good time, it does not matter if you are a sports fan. It does not matter if you are American. It does not matter if you know what baseball is. Uh, check out the YouTube channel called Secret Base. Uh, a guy named John Boy, I think it is. John uh, Boyce. John Boyce uh, puts together the most incredible storytelling around baseball and other sports statistics that you'll you'll see in your entire life and if you've seen it you already know that i'm telling the truth and if you haven't oh my gosh you're so lucky please check out secret base it doesn't matter which series as someone who considers himself a student of storytelling i will vouch 100 percent for that he is such a good storyteller that's a that's extremely high praise coming from you nick i'll stop before i embarrass myself and you but i think that is very high praise coming from you so but coming back to your your earlier point of Having had enough and opportunities to to sort of prove yourself and learn and uh, practice and refine your your skills. Let's let's be honest. 
enough times to just try stuff and mess up and learn lessons and know what not to do next time. Yeah, I wish that didn't take years, but it does. It does. There's there's no does. way around it. It just does. Yep. The one way around it is to try to learn from other people that have a, a management style that you admire and want to emulate. That only gets you part of the way there. Management's only not gets a, you part of the way there. Management is not a spectator sport. Nope. So I want to come back to this idea of how do we recognize it in ourselves? Because the fact is, when we do that, we are violating the uh, the, the sort of um, honesty of the words we say when we say, "Hey, let's let's move away from heroism," and then you go demonstrate it. And I'm so guilty of this. One really important thing in all of this is to cultivate an environment of of safety that leads to you being the kind of vulnerable to your point earlier, Travis, where your team will call you out. And I don't know how many times uh, you've had this experience, but I have this experience borderline constantly now, which I'm, makes me feel so proud because I have my team members call me out anytime I step out of line. Uh, anytime I'm, if I'm performing heroism, I will have somebody on my team. I've literally had this where a person on my team will be like, uh, Brandon, you told me not to pull the hero stuff and I'm watching you do it right now. I'm like, ah, you freaking got me. I hate that. I hate to hear that. And I hate to feel called out like that. And I'm so grateful you just did that. Um, that's exactly what I need to hear right now. And let me think about a, a better way to do this. Do you have a suggestion about a better way I could handle this? And often they will. One of the beautiful things about being a manager is you actually have like a board of advisors that you work with that can call you out on this kind of thing. If you're, if doing, you it, if you're doing it right anyway. If you cultivate that. I was just thinking that, Brandon. Only if you cultivate it. The one caution around that is that some of the things that we have to do as managers will look like heroism to the people on our team when they're really just part of the job. Like yeah, right true. now, I'm doing a ton of interviewing. Anybody that looks at my calendar on the team is going to feel sorry for me because of the number of intro calls that I'm doing right now. It's part of my job. I'm the one that needs to do those. I've offloaded some of them to other folks on the team, um, but it's the most important thing for me to be spending my time on right now. And that calendar is not that abnormal for a manager, but it looks like to the folks on my team that I'm carrying a really heavy load of doing these intro calls. And so there's been a lot of contextualizing that I've needed to do on one-on-ones because my team's been doing the thing that you're talking about. They're like, man, take care of yourself. Your calendar looks really rough right now, yeah. which I love and appreciate so much. But it's like, yeah, you know what? This is the most important thing for the organization right now. And I'm really not doing anything else other than intro calls. So it kind of gets back to the seasonality thing. I was going to say, if you just let the team know your season is not the same as my season, you know, front office, God, I keep going back to, to sports. The front office season is not the same thing as the team season. Um, and, and so my seasonality is slightly different. It's review season right now, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, uh, friends, folks, everyone, it's review season. I regret to inform you. And that means uh, people that are managers, just like I think we I posted in chat, like pour one out for all of my spare time. I've talked to multiple managers that are like, I don't work weekends. I'm working weekends right now. Um, it just doesn't fit. 
in the normal work schedule. There are too many interruptions, too many things to handle. You cannot fit some of the things. And so my period of high intensity is not the same as rolling up to, you know, conference season or whatever. Well, and it's it's hard because in a large organization, reviews are really important. You can deliver consistent feedback in one-on-ones, week in, week out, give folks the input that they need to grow. Their review is your once or twice a year chance to formally declare to the organization the good that this particular individual has done for the company. Yeah. And it's important to them. Everybody likes to see nice things written written about themselves. Everybody appreciates good constructive feedback. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people appreciate good constructive feedback that help them grow. But it it takes on a lot of importance in a large organization because it is one of the critical tasks for a manager and and whatever comes out of it affects people's compensation, has to be justifiable to all the way up the hierarchy. It it's a tough job. And so yeah, it, it makes sense that when that season comes up, your activity as a manager is going to peak. At least if you give a damn. Yeah. And to, to, to the point that Travis made earlier, it's the culmination of all the work you've been putting in, in your one-on-ones and tracking things in wins documents and paying attention to what people are doing and the good that it does and offering constructive feedback about, Hey, here's a growth area. This is something you said you wanted to accomplish and, and you care about. Now you get to formalize all of that stuff in a way that, like you said, is able to be heard by the broader organization, um, and is able to be referenced when it comes time to make like you, you, when it comes time to make the case for somebody to get promoted and it, it, you know, this is a really important checkpoint and you cannot take that super lightly. Yeah. You got to pave a lot of road to get somebody a promotion. Yep. So yeah, you can't sleep on review season. Like you gotta, you gotta show up for it and that's going to be intense and I'm not mad at it. And the team may not understand that that takes extra time, but I, I can, that's a pretty simple explanation. One of the, the best tips that I've gotten on this type of seasonality as a manager came from from Mary Williams. Um, and she talks about intentionally degrading services to your reports and being explicit about it. So when you do take on, when you come into one of these seasons where your activity level is peaking, maybe you have a week that you need to skip your one-on-ones and you just skip them for everybody because you need some extra time to get through review season or you need some extra time to catch up on your work. Maybe you go to bi-weeklies for a while instead of doing weeklies with everybody. Um, the important thing is to make the space that you need for yourself as a manager so that you don't burn out through the seasonality, so you don't let that peak get too high. Um, it, it, it's been important to me to remember that my workload is adjustable. That's a good call out. Because just because there's periods of higher intensity doesn't mean you have to carry everything. So. Nick, you were talking about creating creating the space to adjust your work to the seasonality, to realize that you don't have to do all the things all of the time, which as somebody who has a tendency towards that heroic effort, you want to do all the things all the time. There's more to do. Okay, keep throwing it at me, coach. Like, what, what else can I take on? Um, we don't want our teams to do that to bring this conversation back around to the teams. And I think one of the best ways that we can, can get our teams to not take that on themselves is to demonstrate, Hey, look, I, I need to, I need to postpone our one-on-one this week or, or skip this one. We'll do one next week. I've got, these are the circumstances that are leading me to that. 
I need to create this space so that I can do the part of the job that I need to focus on for this week. Um, is that okay with you? Demonstrating that behavior of, of not trying to take on everything and recognizing there are, there's a time and a place to focus on different parts of the job. Um, and that means to your point, degrading services in other areas. I think that can be a really, really powerful tool to help demonstrate to the team what you mean when you say, I don't want you to take on the responsibility of the heroic individual that's always, always saving the team, always moving the ball forward. I want you to find that, that sustainable pace that you can operate at as high a level as possible, but not burn yourself out, not get into that place where, where you're the, the linchpin of the whole, whole team or, or even more broadly in the organization. Yeah, I mean, I think it's okay for heroic efforts to happen every now and again. You know, when, when you're specking out a server for a service, you build burst capacity into that estimate. Mm -hmm. there, there is some amount of spike capacity that that server is going to be able to absorb. And that's fine. It's, it's not going to cause the server to catch on fire if it hits 100% CPU utilization for five minutes. Now, if it sits there and runs at 100% CPU utilization for a day, for a week, you've got problems. Your service is degrading at that point. You, you have to add more servers to the mix to handle the load. But it's okay for it to peak every once in a while. It's okay yeah. for a job to take more resources than you expect every once in a while. And, and it's funny to me that we're so good at natively managing servers that way, but we so struggle with giving ourselves the same grace that we give a piece of hardware. That feels like a good place to end on. Yeah, I absolutely love that that analogy. Well, I took a lot away from the discussion. Thank y'all very much. It helped remind me of why I do this. I hope everybody listening got something from it as well. Thank you so much. Uh, we're happy you're here. And uh, if you'd like to get a hold of us, if you have topics that you'd like to suggest, uh, we do have um, some suggestions that we would love to get to in the near future and for some definition of near. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, we are on Twitter at Managing Up Show. We're also individually out there on the internets. I am at Ted Viking on Twitter. I am at Nmeans on Twitter. And I am at T. Swicegood most everywhere. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us, and we will see you again next time. Thanks, y'all. See ya.